Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Chaos, fury and running out of gas, and that's just the Labour Party. But what else did September bring us news-wise? To discuss this and more, Kerry, Richard and I are joined by Rebecca Wilkes, reporter at The National. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Hello. Sounded very, very sweet then, sorry. <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, uh, Rebecca. Um, we're going to start off looking at the last uh, week or so in the history of the Labour Party. Um, now, I saw somewhere that you had done the arduous work of reading Keir Starmer's essay, The Road Ahead. Would you be OK with telling us a little bit about what you thought about that essay? Yeah, so I did read it. I think it was like Sunday. I was like, right. I refuse to um, enjoy life, so I'm just going to read Keir Starmer's debut novel. Um, it was something, a lot of words, a lot of paragraphs with words in them. But yeah, it did tell you a lot about how they saw the world and how they, and more importantly, how they think that their voters and the you know, people that they want to impress see the world. Um, and that was very interesting. How would you describe that? What's the what's the picture they painted to you of the world they, <laughs> the voters the voters they want to win over live in? It was nineteen ninety eight, but more than that, I think yeah, it was a it was a it was a picture of a world that is scary and unfair. It was also a world in which the private sector is this sort of like benevolent force that um, it makes it trips up and makes mistakes sometimes, but. It doesn't mean to. He starts one part saying like, uh, business is a force for good in the world. I think I saw somewhere someone saying that it was reminiscent of like how they think Matt Hancock kind of views the world. Business is a force for good in the world. He gets really excited about the fact that somewhere in England, um, a company is working to make um, a green um, aeroplane, green hydrogen wing for um, air travel. That's not the priority, pals. You know, maybe one day we'll have a, an aeroplane that, that doesn't choke the atmosphere, but the headline part of it for me was where he sort of says, the, the road ahead of us is, you know, it goes two ways. And one way you've got the same old injustice and lack of opportunity, and the other you've got a Labour government where the public sector is working in partnership with an innovative private sector. And that is the same old that's how things have worked for so long so yeah yeah I had a bit of a nosebleed by the end of it but yeah go on go no, on. I was just gonna come I, I want to hear what you and Rich thought about it not just the speech but the conference as a whole it's it you know I've got a lot of thoughts on this and I, I just felt it was a conference where they had an open net with a Tory government and I, I can't I can't think they scored anything what, what do you two take from it uh I have so many thoughts that I actually have to write them all down. Otherwise, I was going to forget something. Go on, so, talk, talk us through, A to Z. I don't think that conference can be viewed as, uh, the conference per se, can be viewed as anything but a disaster. I was talking to some Conservatives earlier in the week, and they couldn't believe their luck. There was such an open goal for them. Queues around the block for fuel. Brexit starting to bite. And there's Labour, having a Barney about rule changes. 11,000-word essays, nationalisation, the last remaining Corbynite resigning from the shadow cabinet, the Bakers' Union leaving and disaffiliating from the Labour Party. So the conference itself, not a huge success. 
Uh, and as I didn't even go, I didn't even get the benefit of the sing-along at Welsh Night. Very sad. And on the speech, could I really recommend that people watch that back? Well, the speech was 90-odd minutes long. In that time, you could watch the whole of the original train spotting from Lust for Life to Born Slippy. And to be honest, you know, you should probably choose life, choose train spotting over choosing to ever watch that speech again. I think Team Starmer will view that as a success, as a success in its own terms. Um, very much the speech he would have wanted to give last year to introduce himself to the public at large for the very broad rhetoric, uh, which, which can be broken up quite nicely for clips and for the news, and presents Keir in the, in the way he wants to appear to the public. Uh, strong on crime, uh, focusing on education and climate change and taking on the left of the party. It's not really a speech for politicos, I don't think. I don't think any of people who are broadly, like very specifically interested in politics found any of it particularly interesting in, to, in anything apart from rhetoric terms. But it, it was aimed completely at the voters that Kia thinks he needs to win over, having taken some sort of calculated gamble that he thinks that young progressives will just vote for him and the Labour Party anyway, so that Labour can finish a triumphant second place, just slightly less bad than we did in 2019. Uh, on the union, it was terrible. Keir Starmer showed a complete <laughs> misunderstanding of the modern independence campaigns and movements, which are not about blood and soil nationalism. And he did that by using a metaphor about blood. It's easiest for people in the Labour Party, particularly people like Keir, to dismiss those movements as being full of uh, nasty separate separatists that hate the English because the alternative for people like here is to face up to the fact that many Labour supporters in Wales and Scotland want independence because they don't think he can win an election. Can I come in there? Absolutely. Because I actually reported on this this week and um, yeah I mean I was looking back over um, opinion polls and it's like 51% of 2019 Labour voters in Wales would support independence in 2019, you started seeing some sort of safe red seats starting to go blue. That's, you don't really want to upset 51% of Labour voters, really. I, I spoke to a couple of um, campaigners who are in Welsh Labour who are in favour of independence, and I think their heads were in their hands because it's just like you cannot imagine a better gift to the likes of Plaid Cymru because everything that comes out of his mouth just sounds completely bizarre and like it's it's not talking to like the average person in Wales like even the even people in Wales who are not particularly like asked about Welsh independence I like I know like my mother's not particularly political and she's broadly been in favour of independence for ages just on the sort of vague notion of like oh we could probably do better for ourselves than than Westminster because we keep voting for Labour and all we get is a Conservative government so it's, it's very much that he it's how he Kiyosama wants to present himself to the public at large. I think he's speaking to a specific kind of person in the public. And I think there are some parts of it that are designed to speak to just like the people in his office um, to make them happy. I get the feeling that the people that that speech is aimed for is sort of an imagined person. It's a very interesting stereotype and of what people think the ex-Labour voter looks like rather than what the ex-Labour voter actually looks like. And I think that's the, the major issue. That is the habit. It's sort of harking back to this Blair era rhetoric on, you know, he likes education so oh much, he God, almost said it yeah. three times and 
tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime and all this kind of stuff yeah it, it's, just, it's, it, it's 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 just not the mod it kind of makes think, you want to walk into the sea <laughs> <laughs> i don't think it really i don't think a lot of the time the labor party knows who its voters are anymore and i think that's the uh, significant issue with taking that kind of rhetorical step also it knows who it wants its voters to be um but it doesn't like the voters it has it knows who it's got and it's it's not it's not very fond of those people. They, he'd, he'd rather get, you know, a guy who, who owns a nice shiny Land Rover in like the home counties or something. Yeah, sorry, I'll stop interrupting. Go on, jump in go again? On, no, no, I just, I just, because you mentioned Tony Blair, and I know we don't want to refer back to him, but I was just, I was talking to some marketing people about the speech, and they did say, what can you take away from that speech that? You know, the memorable speeches are the ones you mentioned. The education, education. Was there a third education? The one with the really sweaty shirt and the, the things can only get better music. But I just, I just can't think of anything from the speech this week that would be a positive memory for me. I, I didn't look at it and I haven't read it. But even from the, the news reports, you know, in Wales, it's going to be the blood donor thing, which you mentioned. I've yeah. got to bring Rich, I've got to bring Rich in. Rich, what would what will you take from that speech? Anything? So I feel that I've been set up here. So we've had three people that have been incredibly critical of uh, Keir Starmer's week uh, in Brighton, and now I have to be the one that says what a success it was um, to give a little bit of counterpoint. And actually. I do genuinely believe that Starmer's team will be quite happy with the way the week has gone. To start with the basics, he didn't completely bomb at conference, which I think many of us thought would be a, a very strong possibility. He has just the right proportion and type of crank uh, in the audience that booed and hissed him in exactly the pantomime way that his team desperately wanted. And we all knew that they desperately wanted it. And a clever campaign would have rather that he went through that whole speech in deathly silence, because then if there hadn't been cranks booing and shouting at him, then there wouldn't have been the need for everybody else to kind of wake up and actually applaud him or do whatever kind of perfunctory reactive party unity movement that they felt that they had to do in the audience. The essay thing, uh, I'm glad that you guys read it so that we didn't have to. What was the whole point of that? I would argue probably it got some news for Keir Starmer for uh, the week running up to conference that wasn't awful. It kind of created a, a shroud of mystery before it was published. Maybe. I mean, I'm being as positive as I can about it. I mean, it was de definitely dull. Go on, go on. I think the essay was mostly for people like me who have to write about something every week. And, um, well, well, that's exactly what it was. It was, it was to try and get Keir Starmer's name in the news. And you, you're, you're a journalist working for a newspaper. That is exactly the point. And it was so banal that it didn't give him negative headlines. It just was slightly perplexing. It was like, why is he writing an essay? Doesn't this kind of fall into his stereotype I mean, of being slightly I mean, nerdy? I gave him a negative headline. <laughs> <laughs> what was your headline? Um, um, I believe it was Keir Starmer's public uh, private sector optimism is out of date. I was kind of kind, to be honest, because I was going to say something more sarky. I think I was going to say, like, we have evolved past the need for Keir Starmer or something. But Well, yeah. uh, OK, so, so continuing my positivity, well, not my personal Sorry. positivity, but my feeling that the Starmer team will be quite positive. Everyone's talking a little bit about how Blairite uh, or Blairish it was. I mean, it wasn't 
you know, it, it neither had the craft nor the delivery of Blair. And we'll probably talk about oratory in a, in a little while, because I know that that's what the Hiraith group chat lit up about earlier on today. But of course, Starmer wants to be Blair. Blair won three elections for the Labour Party. If there's a Labour MP that doesn't want to be Blair and doesn't want to win three elections on the trot, I'd be very surprised. So is it any wonder that that's who the modern Labour Party is trying to model itself on because it wants to win. You know, that's what we heard, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Stephen Kinnock talking about on BBC Wales last week about how the Labour Party is built to win. That's his main purpose. And I can understand why they want to do that. Why is why is uh, Starmer so tone deaf on the union? So I, I was looking around for clues. Um, I saw that the UK Labour Party isn't really a UK party. It's a Britain-only party because it doesn't stand in Northern Ireland. And on Britain, in Scotland, it campaigns as Scottish Labour. In Wales, it campaigns as Welsh Labour. And in England, it campaigns as UK Labour. So why on earth would it be confused about <laughs> the territorial constitution? Because it has no idea what, what it's doing, basically. Uh, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, I'm not sure that we've ever been wowed by the PLP's grasp of the territorial constitution of the United Kingdom. And just kind of finally, on the kind of speech itself... Was it memorable? No. Was it achingly trying to be memorable? Yes, it was. There was all that weird stuff about tools, and I don't know if any of our listeners... <laughs> I enjoyed uh, that ending. Yeah. I will quote it. I will quote it. Yeah, these are the tools of my trade, work, right. care, equality, and security, and with them, I will go to work. And, and oh. I, yeah, I mean, in another person's voice and another person's performance... Arguably, it could have been a reasonably good uh, speech. But as you said, Matt, I think that his team will be happy the way that it got clipped up for the news. They'll be happy with that. The fact that he, he his perception was a bit boring and managerial, but he wasn't you know, catastrophically unpopular. The fact that he got that pantomime in the speech at the end was fine. He got his rule changes through at the start of the conference, which caused a little bit of kerfuffle. You know, you have to wonder what was the strategic value of him basically saying, I want my successor to not be like my predecessor. I mean, that kind of already implies that he's thinking that his tenure isn't going to last that long, which is fine. I mean, a lot of people think of him as kind of like a night watchman. You know, he's going to be there to kind of see out the side until the next electoral campaign takes off. And I was quite tickled. I can't remember who it was that said that the obvious next successor candidate is Wes Streeting. Um, oh, and my really, God. That yeah. really did tickle me uh, laughing at that, um, because there is a man who's not going to win over the whole uh, the whole Labour. Can you whole, imagine Wes Streeting? campaigning yeah. to be prime minister of the united kingdom i can i can I, oh. I actually think that there's a reasonable chance it might happen so it might come to be anyway while a lot of people in the know and particularly people from wales and scotland might look at what just happened and think my god that was a bit awful and that was a bit tone deaf and that was not inspiring i think if you're if you are the starmer team who is quite obviously looking to win middle England because that's in England you know UK elections are won in England no matter whatever happens in Scotland and Wales and if you can get enough of middle England to back you over the alternative not that they actually think you're great but you're better than the alternative then you stand a reasonable chance at, of doing reasonably well uh, at an election and I think that I think the Starmer team will be happy just a caveat, those aren't my personal views. That's me doing the best job of being the uh, devil's advocate in this circumstance. Do you want to talk about 
other Labour leaders, Matt? I mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I mean, do you think, how does Starmer size up? What is his actual role as leader of the uh, UK Labour Party? I mean, a lot of people view him as a sort of Kinnock figure, i.e. someone who will cleanse the party of previous defeats and move it on into a position where it can eventually become electable. Keir Starmer is no Neil Kinnock. Um, Neil Kinnock was an incredible orator of the left of the Labour Party, even though he's now reviled by it. He gave us the pleasure of falling down on, on uh, Brighton Beach and Keir Starmer walked on the, on the pavement and didn't give us that pleasure. So what can you do? But no, I, I, the, the Labour Party does not have a history of regicide. In, if you do better in one, if you do okay in one election and move the party forward, they tend to let you fight the next one. They did it with Corbyn and they did it with Kinnock. They, if Keir goes forward again, they may let him do it again. But I, I, I just don't see who comes next to me. I mean, I don't, I don't see a viable alternative leader after him. I mean, God, is that like that guy who's up in Scotland, Ian Murray or whatever, someone Ian like that, who's Murray, yeah. just like square-headed, um, pasty fellas in 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 bad suits. I think is the Labour model for the moment um i can't see them replacing replacing starmer with anyone that doesn't have a square but we um, have to but... remember here is that, that the mps are now empowered so the big winners from this whole conference are the plp because they've they've now feel like they have a degree of a, a credible leader that they can all get well they can't all get behind the majority of them will be very happy to get behind and more, more importantly, they now have a more important role in choosing the next leader than they had previously. So it's quite obvious that they're going to mould the leadership more in the direction that they would like. The thing that I find really interesting about this speech and that the essay and, and, and all of the Labour fluff that's happened this week is that it is desperately trying to relive that period sort of from from the, the mid to late 80s up until, you know, 1997, where you have one leader that gets rid of the left and then you have the one coming back in who he's the winner and then he wows everybody with his, with his uh, you know, big briefcase and his, and his things can only get better. And it's, it's wild because we don't live in that world anymore. It's a fundamentally different world. Like, you didn't have the climate crisis kind of quite as sort of hotly breathing down your neck in in the the late 80s to the mid 90s and, and then 1987 you didn't have um it's sort of it would be comical if it wasn't hurting so many people and i sort of fluctuate between finding it funny and being sort of desperately sad about it yeah i find it i find it interesting i find it very funny at times but it's also it's hard not to just get so angry and so sad about it because you know time is running out on so many points and and every time they waste these opportunities somebody's life somewhere in this country gets worse can i can i so what i want to do because i think we could spend the whole pod on the labor conference and essay quite easily and I, I think we might look at that later in the month gents but back at, at the same time as labor were having their general infighting resignations and things like that the country was in a, a little bit of uproar with um, a fuel crisis. Some would mm -hmm. say self-created. 
Um, and the shortages with truck drivers is coming to the fore, whether it's Brexit related, COVID related. You know, what, what's your what's your take on all that? How come Labour didn't make um, manna from heaven on that this week? It didn't seem to feature in conference. I did a report a couple of weeks ago. It might have even been last week. I'm, I don't know where I'm at lately. Um, where I spoke to someone in the, the trade union congress and, and the report basic that I that I wrote out goes through you know how we got to this point where you know you got 7000 uh, case active vacancies in Wales um that you know Elinid Morgan is is begging people to uh, to do their bit and stand up and and take those vacancies and then you've got um HGV driver vacancies that have have brought sort of the supply of so many things to a standstill part of that is because you know delays to HGV licensing and 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 with Brexit, I mean, the Brexit thing sort of folds into what I'm about to talk about, which is the way the benefit system has worked for, for the past few years. And, and basically you have um, hundreds of thousands of people in this country who are on, on universal credit who are put in this position, um, and not just universal credit, but the legacy benefits, you know, job seekers allowance and, and whatever. They're required to do, um, I think it's like 35 hours of, of job seeking per week, and they're not allowed to turn down a job offer. Um, they have to go for job interviews when told to, and if they don't, they get sanctioned. I mean, the punishments for all these things are sanctioned, which means you lose your money for for a certain amount of time, which obviously, if you're on benefits in the first place, is an absolutely devastating thing to happen to you. Um, so you get this situation where you have no choice but to take a job, any job that's offered to you. And it doesn't matter if that job is poorly paid. It doesn't matter if that job is unreasonably far away from you, from where you're living. It doesn't matter if the you know, it's temporary or the conditions are, are poor, you have to take the job because if you don't, your money gets taken away from you. So over the course of years, where businesses are kind of used to having this constant supply of people who have been on job seekers and have to take any job that you offer to them, businesses as a rule, they're there to make money. They will always seek the, the path of least resistance, you know, the least costs, the most reward. And if You've got this steady supply of people who have no choice but to take any job you offer, no matter how low paid, no matter how insecure that work is. You're going to go for that that pool of workers because why wouldn't you? You know, it it means that you get to keep more of the, the money left over, and you know, in your head, you can justify it as you know, oh, the, the business keeps running. I'm offering more jobs. You know, if I if I don't take these workers, if I start giving everyone a pay rise the business might fail and then all those jobs are gone. So I have to keep doing this. So over time you get more and more businesses from you know the medium size to the, the very, very big businesses. And then you've got sort of gig work that comes into it, you know, delivery, courier driving, all the rest of it. And you get this pool of jobs that is terrible. All of these jobs that are just undesirable. They don't offer you the right, the money that you're looking for. They don't offer you any kind of security. You know, a lot of these jobs are, are hard, you know, care work is hard. Um, dry, HGV driving is hard work. You know, your long hours, lonely hours, unsociable hours. You're sleeping in the back of a truck a lot. You're not seeing your family. And that feeds into the Brexit stuff as well, because you're used to having immigrants from Europe um, who've come in and they, you know, they want to stay in the country, of course, you know, because this is where they've settled. So they're less inclined to leave a, a shitty job, but there's only so much they can take. And, you know, when you've got the pandemic and suddenly like things halt so much, you've got people reassessing 
unless you're going to start going down the route of what the, the food industry lobbyists were arguing for at one point, which was bringing on indentured uh, laborers from prison and, you know, increasing prison labor contracts, then you're going to have to lure people back into these jobs. And the way you do that is through pay rises, offering secure contracts, you know, giving people more flexibility, assure people that they'll have enough to live on when they do their work. And like, that's something that sounds so laughably simple, but like that isn't a guarantee anymore. I, I think I, I, th I think that's the first page of uh, your um, your camp uh, your application to write next year's uh, speech for Keir Starmer at uh, a conference. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I I think one of the interesting things about this, and, and this is where it gets really weird in terms of the political um, spectrum in the UK. So we're in this position where the Conservative Party is championing British jobs and is you know doing the thing that business you know business a lot of businesses are unhappy about by refusing to bring in more cheap workers from the continent from that we would have done in the pre-brexit days as in and is instead championing celebrating the fact that wages are going up for um hgv drivers and others and the labor party and not so much by keir starmer but by mark drakeford of all people is actually in the position where he's in the senate championing free movement to bring in really low paid people from the continent to come and fill these vacancies on an ongoing basis. So up is down, left is right, black is white. Matt, what is going on? Kerry, what is going on? Who is the pro-workers' rights party in 2021? Yes, I will agree with you that Mark Drakeford wants more people to come here and work, but I think that Mark Drakeford is... is would quite happily have them earn significantly more than they would otherwise be paid. I, I don't get the impression from Mark Drakeford that he wants to exploit workers of, from any country, just that he identifies Brexit as being one of the significant causes of our now, you know, hugely damaged job market because people did not feel comfortable or welcome to be in Britain anymore and they left and they have lost their rights to come here and we're not and our wages haven't gone up. Accordingly, you, 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 you hear in the Senate all the time of members of the Senate who represent rural parts of Wales where there are huge job vacancies, especially out west and up north. People just can't, they can't get people to come to Wales or people from Wales to staff their pubs, their hotels, their restaurants. Agricultural workers. As agricultural well, workers as well. You know, everything that's been discussed, discussed and touched upon by you all it, it, it's just I think Britain we're still in that polarized position where Brexit Brexit still has a huge amount of support, Remainers uh, still have a huge amount of support, and both sides are drawing out aspects of all the the issues we face to support their arguments. So you know if you're a Brexiteer, HGV drivers and those you know it, it's argue, it's the argument they had that it was keeping wages low. So if you're a HGV driver and you're going up eight. 10, 15% in your wages, Brexit's probably been quite a good thing. But then in terms of the supply of other products, it, it's not. This has got a long way to play out. And I think when we were discussing things pre-last January, this is some of the stuff we talked about. It was how things were going to play out in reality. And at the moment, I think it's still very equally balanced. I think both sides are quite happy drawing out areas they thought support their arguments about whether Brexit would be a success or not. And Christmas could be what was last year's phrase with COVID, 
Boris was going to save Christmas. It could be another big, uh, big issue to save Christmas this year. You know, I just touched on COVID there. And, you know, that's something which has, again, been a really big aspect this month in Wales and across the UK. We've got COVID passports uh, came into Scotland today and not enforced for another couple of weeks. I think they're planned for Wales later this month and not in England. Have you or anyone at the National Becker looked at uh, the COVID position? You know, because I think rate, Wales apparently is the got the highest rates in the UK at the moment. Um, I'm still, I'm still, I think suffering from a little bit of shell shock from last year, where we had this sort of weirdly almost normal summer. You had eat out to help out, and then it got to September and then October, and then things sort of hurtled downhill very quickly with the fire break. Um, and then, you know, was it a couple of weeks after the fire break? that things really started to um, get worse. And then by December, we had we had the lockdown coming back in. So I think there's a part of me that even though things have changed a lot, there's a part of me that's still braced in myself for it to suddenly go sort of swirling down the drain all of a sudden. You just said the F word. That's uh, called my year. Yeah, furlough. Yeah, that's right. So furlough coming to an end, that's going to be obviously pretty brutal for... Well, I, I, I heard somebody posit the idea that if you're still on furlough, because businesses have been paying part of the wages since is it uh, start of September, is that right? I can't remember, or start of August, can't remember, that uh, most of the people that would have been laid off now, well, this is a theory that I heard posited, I don't know how true it is, but that the people who are still on furlough are likely to be retained because businesses have already been paying part of uh, of their furlough as it is now. So if that business didn't think they were going to retain that person, why would they still be paying them? I don't know how true that is, but I heard that theory um, floated. But also, you know, you, you won't have a fire break this year in Wales because there's no fur there's going to be no furlough. You hear people talking about the potential medical need for it. Um, and, you know, that there are pro and anti-lockdown communities out there, you know, some of which have very strong thoughts. But I think the reality at the end of the day is that if there's no furlough, there will be no fire break. And there's nothing the Welsh Government can do to change Rishi Sunak's mind. I mean, it doesn't look like Boris Johnson can do much to change Rishi Sunak's mind at the moment. So, you know, we're, we're going to have a, a tricky run in, I think, here into, into Christmas, particularly if COVID shows no signs of abating. And... Uh, if the furlough end comes to an end as scheduled um, and yeah we'll, we'll have to wait and see so should we move on just to, we, we, there's one more thing that we just kind of wanted to talk about and um, it, I'd be curious to hear what you think about this Rebecca so we, we we've been talking a lot about what's been going on in the Senate between uh, the uh, Welsh Government and Ply Cymru and why how and what they will be discussing to potentially have some kind of governing agreement of some description. Uh, does anybody have any insight on uh, what that will be? I mean, I have some some insight, if you'd like it. Love I it. mean, the open secret is essentially it's Jane Hutt and Shang Lian who are negotiating this deal. Though I don't think the talks are quite as advanced as people would like to see. I think that you're, you're essentially at the stage where parties are trying to set their red lines from the the agreement so far so I don't know how, how advanced they've got in terms of the the proper meaty discussions that will have to happen on things such as reform electoral reform uh, council tax reform social care reform etc I don't think we're quite at the stage where we're going to know exactly what the parties want from that I think you will see a lot of work around the periphery of stuff they both agree on things to do with food poverty fuel poverty where they can 
Uh, and then I think, I know Plycom, I mean, there's a lot of people in Plycom who are very annoyed about quite how much the Senev is consenting to legislative consent motions on on Westminster legislation, i.e. allowing Westminster to legislate in a devolved area because they do not have the capacity to do it themselves. I get the funny feeling that that will be the basis of a red line that Plaid Cymru will want much more legislation that relates to Wales, passed in Wales, rather than allowing Westminster to do it for us. But that's broadly the insight I've got so far. But I think that we are still quite a way away from knowing exactly what shape this agreement is going to take. Council tax reform is such a big thing. If it's more than, you know, just kind of tweaking the kind of rates and stuff, I mean, if they're going to go for a, like either change the tax completely or go simply just for a revaluation. That's a big old thing to commission. Um, and I know that the, the Assembly did it in 2003, was it? Um, and that to do it again so regularly, particularly bear in mind that England, I don't think, has redone it since the 1990s, is is kind of, is it more of a sticking plaster? And is does that kind of justify the kind of collaboration that they're talking about? Or would I would have thought that Ply Cymru would have wanted more work around the question of home ownership and second homes and not sure what the, but, the big win is. If I can hark you back to uh, the interview we did with Adam Price just before the election. Um, I did try and push him on what exactly Plaid Cymru's revolutionary council tax reform would be, uh, and we didn't really get any substantive answers. We got, we'll make it fairer. So I think the aim of Plaid Cymru and Labour Party's negotiations in this area is anything, it is to make the system fairer. Whatever that means, we don't know. I would assume it will be some form of land value tax, is what I would assume they would aim towards. The taxing is interesting because I think um, there have been feelings around the, you know, the fact that um, a lot of these taxes do need to be um, thoroughly overhauled, and it's just the the, the sort of long and, and not very rewarding work of doing that um, has been put off. I mean, that as I did a an article earlier this year where I spoke to someone at the the Wales Governance Centre about it, and and that seemed to be his thought about it you know nobody really wants to take on on that task because there's there's not much electoral su success in uh, in messing with the, with the council tax um the thing that i kind of find interesting is is what they're going to do with housing because as you say there's a lot of that the second home stuff and what i also find interesting as well is the differences between their um policies on rent so Plaid Cymru ran very explicitly on rent controls and uh the welsh government kind of mimicked her in a little way. They said that they were going to work to restrict um, rents to local housing allowance levels. Unfortunately, I kind of get the feeling that, I don't want to say it was a little fib, but perhaps isn't the policy that it was sold as. There's a, there's a scheme that I think that policy might be referring to. I'm still trying to press them to be, to kind of elaborate. It might be that I'm completely wrong. It might be that they have indeed got a plan to roll out nationwide restrictions on rent to local housing allowance levels. It would certainly solve the problem that came up in the Bevan report the other week where it was found that 95% of uh, rents in Wales weren't covered by local ho housing allowance fully. Um, so obviously that would be like a perfect policy solution, but I, when I asked them about it, the fact that they didn't come back and say, yes, you know, that's definitely our agenda makes me think that, um, because really that would be a perfect moment for them to come in and say, yes, we have the answer. Look how wonderful we are. We're solving this problem. 
Yeah, well, I think it's referring to this um, leasing scheme with landlords that they're starting to, to trial um, that's to do with, um, basically, they take over the local authorities, take over the, the management of properties um, and give grants to maintain properties um, in exchange for landlords charging local housing allowance rates. Of course, that relies on, on landlords being willing to accept that accept that limit on their price i don't think they're quite as enthused i've heard like murmurings that maybe the the people that they wanted to get on board may not be quite as enthused as they thought or they'd hoped we'll we'll see what comes out of that i'm still plugging away at that but it it would be certainly be interesting to see what discussions are going on between the two on that count because again as i said play camry very explicitly ran on rent controls and in Scotland we've got the 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 working agreement between the SNP and the Greens they have also said they're going to roll out universal rent controls because I'm very interested in um, housing policy that for me is the thing that I'm really curious to see what comes out of it I, I am very curious to see how Plaid will press that that point because it would seem to be a very it would be a big moment for them, much as it was for the SNPs and the Greens up in Scotland, um, for them to, to come swooping in with a solution. But I'm not confident that Labour in particular are, are willing to upset the NRLA. I think you might be right there. No, I want, I want to just pick your brains before we go. Um, it's been a big month as well across the border with a reshuffle in London, <laughs> Boris in the United States, talking to the UN. I don't know if you heard the Kermit the Frog line. Before we go, is there any kind of key points from Westminster you think we want to draw out? I have no insight here, but uh, I am assured by from what you've been telling us over the last year, Kerry, that it is easy being green. Um, so uh, uh, the Kermit thing was obviously a total fib. Uh, any ideas, Matt? In terms of his Westminster reshuffle, it was essentially to, to clear the news schedule, I think, wasn't it? From bad news about Brexit and fuel and gas so he only did it for that real reason I mean and to, to move around a few people to promote Liz Truss who he sees as a loyal uh, general and to you know you know harking back to Wales as we often do in this pod uh, Robert Buckland Nettley's own Robert Buckland who was the Lord Chancellor and Justice Minister just Secretary sorry he got moved because they needed his job they needed to give something to Rob that made sense and that is what they gave him they said oh Rob was a lawyer once he can be the Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, and that will maybe make him feel better about being kicked out of his Foreign Secretary role. I wonder how Mick Antony is getting on uh, speaking with Dominic Raab against, about the devolution of justice again, now that uh, that's an, a formal request on its way from the Welsh Government. Um, I, I, think, I think Gove is still dealing with that, you know. Really? I think, I think Gove, my, mm. something in my brain is saying to me that Gove is still in charge of all the intergovernmental relations between the, the devolves mm. and the UK government. Interesting. Rebecca, sorry. The thing about the, about the Justice Minister being replaced is um, one of the, the way too many things that I'm interested in is justice. And I interviewed um, a person with the, the National Probation Union not too long ago. And one of the things that she pointed out to me was that there was a just one of the things that would damage the probation service to the point that it has been damaged. I don't know how familiar you are with um, what's happened there, but it got broken up partly in so, so that the you know more serious stuff 
um, was handled by the public sector and then a bunch of other stuff was farmed out to private sectors across the board it meant that you know you had higher workloads you had people making mistakes and then there was a really awful case where um, a serious offender ended up uh, killing someone because of that but the thing she pointed out to me was the fact that you you have such a high turnover of justice ministers and now he's gone um, and obviously uh, the probation service was brought back in house and it hits watch and now Rob's in and it, it does make you worry what kind of mark is is Rob gonna make because these are these are interesting people have their own big ideas and justice is is certainly a department where if you've got big ideas you can really kind of let it rip and they have done in in recent years so I do worry where that's going to go it is interested on the interesting on the devolution of justice point we're coming up on two years since the uh, the thomas commission on justice in wales report um i'm doing a little bit of work on that as well um i wonder where that's going to go well rob rob always strikes me as a man you know who's full of compassion and a sense of burning desire for social justice so i'm sure I'm sure everything will be fine uh matt so did you have something to i was just going to say before we go becca what is your next column for the national going to be? I don't know yet. I was going to write it on uh, policing after everything that's happened this week. Um, I wrote a column not too long back about it was when uh, Sarah Everard's murder was. Um, I think it was when he pled guilty, and I wrote a column about police power and how we're kind of as a country allergic to the conversation about police power and particularly police power over over women and, and sort of marginalized people and the stuff that's come out this week has kind of brought a lot of that screaming back with some of the details that have come out you know the fact that he used his, his warrant card and COVID powers to arrest her and the fact that people saw it happening and didn't intervene because they assumed that if she was being arrested she must have done something wrong and and doesn't that in itself sum up the conversation is that you know and then and then you've had um you've had some various responses from members of the police you know or if, if you suspect this person is legitimate just run or flag down a bus or you know how, how do you do that because then you can be hard done for resisting arrest and and you know in the case of you know young black men that doesn't often serve them well either you know they used to be in stopped on spurious grounds and a lot of them will tell you that if you start to ask them you know under what power are you doing this you know i've not done anything wrong that in itself can be cause to arrest you because you're resisting arrest so there's a there's a lot there to unpack and and um the thing that i was doing today that made me so manic um and so behind on everything was that i interviewed last night um a victim of the spy cops scandal she lives in in south wales and um yesterday um as well it was um the tribunal ruling for kate wilson who is one of the, the spy cops victims and they found that the Met Police had, had committed a formidable list of human rights violations in, in their treatment of her. And basically they came down hard on the idea that, you know, the, the, I don't know how much you know about that particular case, but it was, you know, a bunch of undercover police officers were sent to infiltrate le left-wing activist groups from the late 60s all the way up until the, the mid 2000s. I think Lisa, who was the person I interviewed, I think the guy that she was in a six year relationship with who she, later found out it was a police officer when she found his real passport and um, that was in 2010 oh, it was still going on and the only reason it really ended was because he was told by his handlers that he was getting a desk job and he quit the force because he didn't want to do a desk, uh, desk job but he went on to um, work in private security doing the same job 
um, infiltrating protester circles. Um, so I was going to write on that. Um, I'm not. I might still, but it's taken a lot of me writing um, Lisa's story. I'm very much interested in doing more on justice, though, um, be, for obvious reasons. I, I think you can see that there's there's a lot to um, scrutinise, a lot to discuss. Well, thank you very much, Becca. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming to talk to us this evening. If people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? Um, on Twitter, I am uh, at Wilkes Becker, W-I-L-K-S-B-E-C-C-A. Um, and you can find me on the national.wales, um, where I am a weekly columnist and a reporter. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Becca. Uh, if they want to hear more from you, Rich, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Mimosa Cymru. Uh, Kerry? Um, I'm still Kerry the Viking. Wonderful. And I am still Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. And if you've enjoyed anything you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at HeroiceBlogCumry, on Facebook at HeroiceBlogCumry, and on Twitter at HeroiceBlog. Thank you for listening to Heroith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.